Welcome everyone to Time for the Soul, the podcast where we talk about life, universe, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And we are here in beautiful and sunny Charlotte, North Carolina, and in this beautiful farmhouse, actually. I have never recorded in such a beautiful location. We have cows across the street. <laughs> it's amazing. And chickens in the backyard. God bless Jetta and her family for hosting us and for letting us record here. But we have a very special guest today. We have Ruth here. Hello. And we have Robert Martin joining us. Welcome, Robert. Hello there. It's good to be here. Good to have you back. So we had you on the podcast about two years ago. So time flies. I can't yeah. believe it's already been two years. It didn't. It didn't. I thought maybe it was last year. No, nope. that's quick. It is quick. Time flies when you're having fun. We're so honored to have you come on the podcast last minute. Thank, Thank you for you. joining us. Thank you for having me. We're excited for what the Lord has in mind here today. What we're going to speak about. What the Lord is going to share. But before we dig into all of that, what is something? What is something that's brought you joy recently? Um, watching people respond in the altar last night uh, definitely brought me joy. Specifically, watching uh, Pastor Cornell from Bethesda, uh, Detroit or Troy, Michigan, work the altar. Um, mm. It's uh, it's a I wouldn't say it's a gift. It's a, it's like ex- exclusive to a handful of people. It's more like a maybe a muscle and a training to allow the Lord to use you praying with people, whether it be an altar or a prayer meeting or just with a friend uh, after coffee, however. But um, when you feel like the Lord has given you a message and you've delivered it and people have come hungry, it's wonderful to see people flexing that muscle of prayer, prayer in the means of encouragement. And and I told him after service, I said, brother, if I had a hundred of you, <laughs> we... Uh, you know, any service, you could preach on anything and you could just uh, see the whole temperature of the place rise with that um, level of prayer encouragement in the altar. And so that really brought me joy. Amen. And for the listeners here, actually, just this past weekend, Brother Cornell was voted in as the assistant pastor of our church. Yeah. So we're very excited yeah. to have him as our new assistant pastor. It's great. You know what? Let's just dig in. I feel like there's a lot to be said and little time. But Ruth had a wonderful question that she wanted to ask Robert and by extension to have everyone here. So coming in this morning, I was thinking, I'm like, Lord, what should we talk about? And this um, thought came to mind, maybe because Robert is from outside our community and maybe it's a different sort of insight that you would have. What do you feel God would say to the Romanian community in this moment from what you observed so I get I actually get asked this question um, fairly often when I'm around um, young adults after services, just fellowshipping. And so um, if I could kind of boil down, synthesize some of those responses, <clears throat> I think that um, wherever there had been restrictions, I was raised in strict Trinitarian Pentecostal churches and... Um, I went to a strict Bible college, so I'm very familiar with a, a broad swath of uh, groups that have different uh, standards, and I don't mean by that that it's legalistic. I, their heart is right, and they're doing it as unto the Lord, but there are those that are maybe raised in those environments that don't feel that that is something they're to live under, and um, what I see or notice is that sometimes when you open one gate and you you say okay well th- it's not a sin for me to you know i'm just going to use an extreme i don't i don't mean this to be offensive to anybody but like 
okay, well, let's, I'll just use a, an American church per se. So like if, if you grew up in a church where you just sang hymns and the, the main instrument was an organ, and then you say, well, it's not a sin to play an acoustic guitar in church. You know, that was an issue at a time in American churches. The problem is, is whenever you make that transition, where do you press the brakes? Hmm. And so I see people that maybe they were raised, it's a sin to wear this, it's a sin to, to put on this, it's a sin to pierce this and tattoo this. And, and I'm not speaking for or against any of those things. I am, however, saying once you begin to give yourself some license, some my conscience is not grieved, I feel liberty, I don't often see people use restraint after they begin to give in to one area or another. Mm. So as an outsider, when I come into a community, I first notice what's different in that community from my own culture. And what I notice at face value, what I notice first amongst the Romanian community is the reserved demeanor in worship and not necessarily in the volume of prayer, but in the uh, overall expression of their response to the move of the Spirit. And by that, I mean like your feet stand still, you know, all of those things, you know. Um, and so I think, why is it that way? And so then as I, I get into it and begin to ask questions, I realize it comes from a motive of reverence. And, you know, whether there's some communist influence or some Eastern Orthodox in, influence, all of those things still, what is the what is the desire when people come to church? Why Why are they personally doing it? They're not thinking, I'm doing this because of Ceausescu, I'm doing this. This is a really long answer, but mm-hmm. it's a big question. So I, I don't think that they're doing it out of a means of trying to carry on some specific thing. I think that they have processed this is the reverential way to approach the Lord. What is then the theme root of that? The fear of the Lord. So there is a wholesomeness, there is a holiness to the means by which they feel I am most honoring to God when I'm standing still, when I am reverential, when I am bowed in this posture of reverence. An American may come into that not understanding and say, you need to clap, you need to uh, jump, you need to run, you need to dance, you need to wave your hands, you need to whatever that they would see, let's fix the behavior on the outside. And what they would be missing is they've opened the gate, not for people to become more free in worship style. That's what they're thinking. But what they've done is they've opened the gate for people to go beyond their own boundaries and borders of reverence and the fear of the Lord. And the problem is, is when you when you start telling people it's not a sin to do this, it's not a sin to do that, if you don't walk with them and how to hold on to the fear of the Lord while expressing yourself in the liberty of worship, they don't know where to pump the brakes. And I've been maybe only one place that I can actually think of, but I've been in one Romanian context where, uh, I won't even tell you what country it's in because I've preached in Romanian churches in four countries now, where there was no more reverence left. Hmm. Not in dress, not in worship, not in the approach of the Lord. And that breaks my heart. Who did that? Who told a generation, let's throw off all the restraint of our forefathers And in so doing, let's be uh, just cavalier, nonchalant, nothing matters. We're just happy. It's happy-go-lucky worship time. Yeah, they look a lot more like American churches, but they lost something. Hmm. My message that burns within me is 
the marriage of the fear of the Lord and the worship of a the worship of a heart of a child when they've been waiting for their dad to come home and there's nothing unwholesome about that that lifted expression that says tata tata i've been waiting for you mm-hmm. and if i ever write a book one of the chapters of some book would be the holy shout because david is moving the ark of the covenant he does it wrong as it touches the ark he dies there's a funeral I mean, shut down the move of God. We didn't reverence the Lord. What then is the response? Do it the right way, with the right heart, the fear of the Lord, reverence. But while the Levites are carrying it, while they're making sacrifice, while they have the right heart posture, David also dances before the Lord with all of his might. Now, if you're listening to this podcast and you think Robert's making a a plea for dancing, you're not hearing what I'm saying. It's Mm -hmm. not behavioral modification on the outside. Yeah. It's giving yourself permission that you do not have to divorce worship in freedom from the fear of the Lord. And I'll just close this very long monologue with this one thing. My first time in Israel, they take you to a place that could be the garden tomb. Now, is it 100%? No. You you wait in line. It's somewhat of a tourist attraction. But I'm thinking, what is it going to be like when I get in this room where there is a small possibility this might be the exact room where the body of my Lord laid. You walk through this this alcove door of rock into a cave, and you look at the place where the body may have laid, and something in you says, what a holy place. This is none other than the holy of holies, the angels at his head and at his feet, the mercy seat. And you have a lump in your throat, and you have a tear in your eye, and you say, my Savior was in a place just like this. But at the same time, I have a lump in my throat and a tear in my eye. I feel something rising up in me. Christos Anviat. He's not there anymore. Amen. He's alive. And if he's alive, though I have a reverential awe, I also feel it's more than just, it's not yeehaw, it's not woohoo, it's not lighthearted, frivolous, shallow, charismania. It's a deep, deep, rejoicing that makes me want to, it makes me want to dance. I I, mm-hmm. I wanted to cry and dance all at the same time. So, oh man, I hope nobody hears that and t- takes the wrong way and thinks the ministry of Robert Martin wants to make all of our churches dance. That's not it at all. <laughs> I just want a generation to feel free to be in the presence of their father and not to lose any ground Amen. of the great fear of the Lord. Amen. Yeah, I can think of an example. Um, I was actually in Romania eight, nine years ago, and um, we went to a conference over New Year's, and I really wanted to go to that conference. We rented a hotel room for three days, and I was expecting a move of God. It was put on by, it's a, a church affiliated with something in America. And my sister and I, was the first night we got there, um, and worship is starting, and it was a contemporary church very American style in their worship. And I've never left a conference in my life. That was the first conference I've ever left. Me and my sister were literally in the service and it's not even halfway through worship. And I literally asked them like, Lord, are you here? Because mm-hmm. I, I don't. And I looked at my sister. I'm like, Leanne, I don't know what's happening, but no, like the Lord is not here. Mm-hmm. 
And literally we got up, we told our cousins, like, we can't stay here anymore. Like mm -hmm. we didn't even make it through. Maybe we made it through the service. I can't recall. But I remember we left. Like we had three nights of hotel booked. <laughs> we, it was the most interesting. And they, it was supposed to be a free conference. It was supposed to be like where you can express freely. But it did not work. And I don't know and you and, and Paul was clear with that. He says, some things may not be sin, but you have to be sensitive to your conscience. And if your conscience is grieved, then you, you need to, if you eat and grieve your conscience, then for you it's a sin because grace has us all on a journey at different places. And you might say it like this, it's not where you're at, it's which way you're going. And so for a person coming out of prison, um, I said this to some Romanian young people recently, when people come out of years in prison, they're trying to reacclimate to society, they live in something called a halfway house. And it's a house where you're living with other former inmates, but you're getting a little bit of freedom. You're getting a job. And but statistically, if people stay in that house too long, they end up going back to prison. Mm. Is it wrong to have a house with halfway house? No, it's wonderful. You're out of prison. But someone who's never been to prison, why would they go to a halfway house? Again, if you're mishearing what I'm saying, you're going to think that I'm saying all American churches are the halfway house to prison. That's mm -hmm. not what I'm saying. There are wonderful American churches. I mean, surely the American community understands people like David Wilkerson had a powerful church in Times Square in New York City, 10,000 people, wonderful liberty and worship, great choir, but there was still the fear of the Lord. But but a young person saying, I want to cast off restraint. I just want to be free to do whatever I want to do. When they go into an atmosphere like you're talking about, for them... You know, there's people in that room that might have just got off of meth and crack and might have come out of years of demonic generational garbage. For them, it, it's it's closer to Jesus than where they were. But for you and the people you were with, it was it was a step back from from the depths of knowing God. And I think it wasn't even what they were doing. It was no different than Winterfest. It was no different than one conference. There was no manifestation that was scary or very different than like what I've experienced. It was just, it was like expression without substance. Mm -hmm. You discerned there was an emptiness. Yeah. I, I think the Lord will not enter a space where he's not reverenced. Mm. Right. So the Lord is the Lord. He is the Lord of hosts. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. If there's no proper reverence for him, he will, he, he will not come. Right? Right, right. So we see that in the Old Testament time and time and time again. And I think that's probably what happened at that conference. If there's no holy reverence for the Lord, why would he want to be there? And I think that comes out of pure intentions of the heart. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think what you're touching on is the topic of the fear of the Lord, which you touched on last night. So if people haven't heard that sermon from last night, I would highly recommend it. But it's an interesting thing that you brought it up because actually the night before, there was a small group of us praying and interceding for the conference Saturday night in, in the gymnasium. And there was a prophetic word that came through. And the word was, I will not be treated like a toy. Mm. I will not be treated flippantly. The fear of God came into that room, and you almost didn't want to stand up. Mm -hmm. And we forget in taking advantage of the full liberty that we have and the full freedoms we have in Jesus Christ, uh, I think sometimes we forget that that freedom also comes with a cost, and it comes with the price of the flesh, mm -hmm. almost. 
the cost of the flesh, and us truly understanding who God is rightly, there, there's a both and. It's like two sides of the same coin. Yeah. I uh, recently ministered on the topic of the fear of the Lord, and I really, um, how would you say, I savored the study of, of digging into a, a topic that unfortunately Americans don't deal with very often in their churches. And so there's 150 uh, to 175 direct or indirect references to the fear of the Lord in the Bible. And then you, you, you even find people like Cornelius, a Gentile, that didn't understand Jewish ways or Christian ways, and yet the Bible says of him, he feared the Lord. And so that's why God chose to break, to break the gospel in upon Gentiles in his home. And so, you know, people don't have to learn our specific customs. They don't have to become like a Southern Pentecostal, the way I was raised in order to approach the Lord. I remember Dr. Mark Rutland said he was preaching somewhere and a, a young lady that had lived a, a very ungodly life and had not been in church, um, had somehow been invited, was in that moment. And at, as people were leaving, she met with him just briefly in the aisle and he talked to her about her soul. And she said, I'd like to give my life to the Lord. And he said, well, let's just, you know, we don't have to, we could pray here, but let's go on down to the altar and let's kneel there and talk to the Lord. And when she got to the front pew, a girl that's not been raised in church, that doesn't read the Bible, she said, would it be all right if I took my shoes off right here? Mm. Holy ground. Okay. So she's not read Moses taking his shoes Mm -hmm. off. There is something natural within us that should know if he is holy we do not approach him like the pizza man that's delivering something at our door. Mm. We do not high five our way into his presence. We do not just, you know, fist bump Jesus in prayer. There is an approach to the Lord that is it doesn't mean that you come this is this is the danger. You you can exalt the fear of the Lord until you make it sound that God doesn't want you to be there at all. Yeah. And that's not yeah. the case. His eyes burn like fire. Before him we are naked and exposed. He is the judge of all the universe, and yet with nail-pierced hands, he reaches out his hands and says, come in anyways. Isaiah, you come in here, I'm going to put a coal against your lips. That sounds really poetic to us, but he's like, I'm going to burn you. Mm. Come in anyways. Jacob, you encounter me, you're going to walk with a limp, Mm -hmm. but come in anyways. And he says to us, you want to come into the Holy of Holies? Well, your flesh is going to die. We call it the altar. The altar is not a blessing place. The altar is a place for things to die. Yes. However, God says, come in anyways. And if you've ever been in the holy presence of God, there is no substitute for the richness, the, the, the power of God entering into your life. You don't enjoy it like a, you know, like a party. You enjoy it in the depths of your soul. You savor the glory of God and, uh, so that balance, you know, I feel like the Lord takes me um, to communities to remind that community of their own DNA in the Lord. Amen. India had the gospel mm. thousands of years before America was discovered. And so when the Lord invited me, open door to preach in India, I didn't dare say, you know, God's brought me here to tell you something you don't know. No, the gospel's been here so long. The Lord's told me to come and remind you, this is real India, mm. not Hindus bowing down to idols. Indians lifting their hands and singing of Christ. This is the real India. I go to Cuba and there's there's a revival there. 
How dare we try to bring something of American Christianity? If anything, American Christianity needs the fires of the Cuban revival. So what do I preach when I'm there? I preach Jesus, but I preach the Jesus that is in the DNA of that revival. There's a, there's a stronger element of the holiness of the Lord in the Cuban Pentecostal church. Be Cuban Christians. Amen. God wants all nations in the bride of Christ in their distinction around the throne of God. You know, what would be so sad is if you thought that unity meant uniformity. Yeah, That's a good distinction. We come before the Lord and we can all be modest in our dress. It doesn't mean we all have to buy the same shirt from the same store. Mm-hmm. No, there's there's a beautiful expression of our uniqueness, and yet we approach the Lord with our unique expression Amen. within the beauty of holiness. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just um, a river without a banks, my professor in Bible college used to say, a river with no banks is a swamp. And so we want the boundaries. We want restrictions. We want pastors with lift up standards and say, you know, you're not going to worship any way you want to, not here. There is an appropriate way to approach the Lord. And every pastor has to be air traffic control for what he allows in that church. But you also have to give grace to your leader to say, well, I don't have a conviction that that's wrong, but you are not responsible for the souls of that house. So you reverence God and you reverence your leader and say, they may not have it 100% right, but I'm submitted to these riverbanks because I don't want to worship in a swamp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think... With regards to the topic of worship, I want to emphasize that it all does, it begins at home though. Mm. So true worship coming before the Lord with that fear of God, with entering into his holy presence. If we're waiting for that for a winter fest or if we're waiting for that for a conference, that's, it's not enough. It has to start at home in the secret mm-hmm. place between you and the Lord. And out of the outpouring and outflowing of that, it'll come over into these conferences, they'll spill over there. But if we're waiting for those moments and they're like, yes, now I can truly worship. Well, you you missed the point. Sure. You've missed the point. I think probably if other people are like myself, we learn to pray, not necessarily even in a church service. Mm-hmm. We learn to pray in prayer meetings. Mm-hmm. We learn to pray mm-hmm. next to our parents by a bedside. And for me, my grandparents. And I remember many times as a little, little kid, We'd kneel down at night when I was spending the night with my grandparents. And my grandparents did not pray, now pray after me, now and lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. My mom taught me to pray like that. My grandparents, cute little sweet, lovely people, would kneel down and then go to war. (laughs) Oh, God. Hallelujah. I mean, we were in the third heaven in 30 seconds. And... uh, there was a fear of the Lord. Mm. There was a, the effectual fervent prayer. There was a fervency. A minister brought out yesterday morning at a church I, I visited in the morning, actually in Sunday school, that Paul said um, in this last chapter, maybe in Colossians, I think, of Epaphras, he says, who has been laboring earnestly in prayer for you. So I just opened up some some cross, uh, you know, some other commentaries and cross-references and what what does this word mean? And sometimes it's translated struggle, sometimes labor, sometimes war. And you're like, man, Paul must have been a prayer warrior. And yet he's got a guy in his house that says, when this guy prays, he's sweating. This guy is, he's putting in work. Mm. And so where do you learn to pray? I have a friend that's traveled with me 
Uh, we started traveling when he was 19 and I was 29. We went to Africa for four weeks. Evangelist Robbie Grubbs, 10 years younger than me, and he's taught me so much on prayer. Mm. Not bullet point lectures, but listening to him pray. And so it, it starts at home, but it also starts in small group prayer meetings, not with just our friends. <laughs> if you just pray with people your age, you're just going to say, God, just bless the pizza right now. <laughs> but if you get with some seasoned saint that's mm. been through you know, storms of life, mm. y- you'll begin to say, God, right now I'm just going to listen. Amen. I'm going to pick up not on the, the words they use, but the depth with which they pray. And uh, yeah. Since we're talking about the reverence of the Lord, fear of the Lord, what is the most divine moment that you've personally ever been in, in a congregational sense? Well, there was a moment, I believe 2010, I was invited to preach a national youth conference in Papua New Guinea. Um, this movement, their overseer had passed away a year or two before, and so they had to cancel. They only do this youth conference every two years, so because they all came together for the funeral, it had been four years since their youth conference. So that's you know almost a whole generation of high schoolers that had not been, so they came hungry. There were 4,000 young people. Some of them came on boats from the outer islands. Some of them, it took weeks to get there. Some of them walked weeks. One youth group said, we walked three weeks to oh. get here. And, uh, you know, they have on, some of them don't have shoes. Some of them, their shoes are literal plastic Coke bottles that are smashed with strings, you know, holding it beneath their feet. No air conditioning, mm. no deodorant. And they danced and sweated for an hour in worship before they would let me up to preach. <laughs> and it smelled horrible in the natural, and it must have been a sweet-smelling savor mm. in the nostrils of God. Not provocative dancing. You know, anybody that's listening to this that doesn't know what I mean, go ask your pastor that's been on a mission trip to Africa mm. or a place like that. You, it, it's, you know, it's, you, we're going to have all these expressions around the throne of God. And so it was beautiful. It was wonderful. It was holy. And then the missionary said, this movement has neglected preaching on the baptism of the Holy Ghost because they want to be more accepted in society. And they said, would you preach on the baptism of the Holy Spirit? I said, yeah, I said, that's like asking a fat kid if he wants to go get ice cream. I'm like, yes, yes, I want to preach on the Holy Ghost. And so I preached that night. And when I gave the altar call, so many hundreds of them were pressing in that we couldn't get even on the floor to pray with them. And I looked at the missionary. I'm probably... 2010, I'm like, I don't know, like 27. And um, I said, what What are we going to do? We can't lay hands on them. No altar worker could. And he said, tell them to lay hands on themselves. I said, well, that work. <laughs> he said, that's what Smith Wigglesworth did when there were thousands upon thousands of people in the 1920s in these conferences that he was at. And he said, it's, it's the only option we have. And so I take the microphone and I said, everyone, I want you to lay hands on yourself, and we're going to pray together, and we're going to believe God to fill us. And when we prayed, God, fill us with the Holy Ghost. And I simply said, in the name of Jesus, receive the Holy Ghost. The missionary put in his newsletter that at that single second, over 400 of those young people instantaneously received the baptism of the Holy Ghost and began to speak in other tongues. And I... I had a revelation at that moment as my soul was rejoicing 
first of all, that Jesus is the baptizer. Mm. He, it's not us. He doesn't, yeah. you know, it's biblical to lay hands on, but, you know, what glory he got that it was just him. He was in the midst. Revelation says he's walking in the midst of the lampstands. He's the one pouring out the oil. So, you know, all the glory to Jesus. But in that moment, I realized Peter, James, and John never got to Papua New Guinea. But he said, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And we're in that day. And I got to witness hundreds in one moment as God filled them. And so Praise the Lord. that's one of the mountaintop experiences of my life. But last year I was in the Philippines. There were 3,000 campers. And it wasn't in one second. It was in one service. But wave after wave came and uh, God filled and filled and wow. filled. And at the end of it, young Filipinos speak English very well. So I didn't need a translator. So I just asked, I said... How many of you have never spoken in tongues before tonight and God filled you with the Holy Ghost and you received the Bible experience of speaking in other tongues for the first time and over a thousand young people lifted their hand. Wow. And so God is doing it. Amen. He's fulfilling his word. Amen. We're seeing his spirit go out to the ends of the earth. Amen. Amen. And it's happening in obscure places. And my, mm. my friend uh, was at a wedding in Virginia and one of the bridesmaids happened to be a Mennonite young lady because my friend is a more stricter Pentecostal. And sometimes when you have very strict standards of how you should dress, you make friends with other strict people, <laughs> you know, they're your, your volleyball teammates because, mm -hmm. you know, they're going to play in a skirt. So your, your sister's playing a skirt. So this girl was a bridesmaid for this Pentecostal young lady. And she has the little, you know, like a little doily over her head, just very small head covering. And uh, she wears it all the time, not just in worship. Well, he, he just was like, wow, she's she's beautiful. And so he starts talking to her at the wedding, and then he's like, she's not even Pentecostal. And he's like, well, I don't want to really get to know her too well if she's over this divided line. And so <laughs> he starts talking to her about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And she said, well, if it's real, I don't have to go to your church to, the, to receive this. Mm. She went into a barn at her house, and she began to pray. And four hours later, she came out and she called him. And she said, it's real. Wow. God, the Holy Ghost showed up in Praise my barn, Lord. up in the hayloft, and I received. Amen. So whether it's a conference or whether it's the hayloft, he's pouring out his spirit. Amen. Yeah. What about personally? I, I, just, I just don't have small answers. I feel bad. I don't want to monologue. This I wanna, is why we have a podcast. I want to have <laughs> perfect conversation. Not, you this know. is not a reel. We're not producing reels. Okay. We're producing long-form conversations. Let's hear it. When all my life I wanted to be a preacher, even as a toddler, you know, as service is dying down and a preacher has a, some closing remarks, and sometimes the children have been antsy, so they're just crawling around. My mom would say I would, I would get away from her, and my grandfather was our pastor when I was a small boy, and he would pick me up and hold me, even while he was continuing to exhort, preach a little bit, pray. And people would say, he looks like his grandfather. He's going to be a little preacher. And then my mom would put me in little suits, you know, like <laughs> we like to do to little kids at Easter and stuff. Mm -hmm. And people would say, oh, you're a little preacher man. And my granddaddy would sit me on his lap as a three-year-old and say, you're my little preacher man. That was my identity. So all I ever wanted to be, I had a poster of my favorite preacher on my wall when I was 14 years old. You're like, well, that's, you shouldn't worship preacher. I didn't worship him. I just, I looked up mm -hmm. to men of God. I read these books about John Wesley and Charles Finney and revivalists. And so when I started preaching, um, man, I thought this is what I was made for. But when you attach your worth to doing mm. instead of being his, 
There is never enough doing that will satisfy you that that longing for significance. That one statement, you know, is it will take a lifetime for us to continue to process what not because I said it, it's not original with me. I'm just saying our worth cannot be attached to our doing. We are not human doings, we are human beings. So I got to a place where I was preaching Sunday morning, Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, traveling all day Saturday to the next church and going again six days, seven services, and I didn't feel like it was enough. And I was at my home church in Orlando, Florida at the time, and a friend that I'd been to high school with that was also called Phenomenal Preacher was up preaching in the service that night. He was also an evangelist, but he he preached more at our home church. He didn't travel a lot. And it was as if the enemy said, you don't matter here. Hmm. You're, you've been gone since you left for Bible college, your home, a week or two out of the year. These people don't even know you. Well, I thought, well, my family, you know, in the country on the farm where I was raised an hour and a half away, you know, I matter to them. I'm going home for Thanksgiving. And the enemy said, you don't matter to them. You left there when you were a little kid when your parents got a divorce. And so then what happens when you allow that spiral to tell you, no worth, no value, you don't matter. So then my mind starts saying, where do I matter? And I literally thought, well, certainly Papua New Guinea and that <laughs> that great movement. And I thought, they probably don't even remember my name. It was one moment, you know. Mm-hmm. They've gone well on with their lives. And so then the enemy's just like, you don't matter, you don't matter, you don't matter. And building up to this season, there had been months where I was taking off a sweaty suit and tie in wherever I'm staying after preaching and praying in the altar for hours and saying, God, I just, I feel empty. And it wasn't the lack of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't a lack of fasting and praying. I just was leaning too much on this is what I gained my paycheck of identity from. Mm. And it was it was an empty account. And I got to the place that I was thinking this, What? how do you... Say out loud to yourself, I don't want to be a preacher anymore. What am I if I'm not a preacher? This is all, I, all I've ever wanted to be. It was a crisis moment in my life. And so it was all crescendoing in that service as my friend is under a fresh anointing, imparting to our young adult ministry. And I'm sitting there in the enemy saying, you don't matter, you don't matter, you don't matter. Well, as men, when we have a problem, we think, okay, I got to go fix this. So as soon as the altar call was given, I didn't go up front. I went to the back wall in a corner and I said, okay, God, what do I need to do to matter? Well, maybe I need to challenge myself to level up. Mm. God help us. <laughs> I started thinking, well, I could get my pilot's license. Then I could travel more and I could just, you know, it would be on my own terms. Well, I could go get my master's degree and, you know, know the Greek and the Hebrew better. And I could, I could call pastors in advance and say, you know, before Sunday morning service, can I meet with the teenagers and teach Sunday school? Is there a Hispanic church in town that maybe rents your building? Is there a two o'clock service I could preach with a translator? Then I'm thinking, how can I do more, do more, do more? And then I, I just started, my mind started opening the filing cabinets of everything I'd done in the past to try to fix the void of you don't matter. Hmm. It's not like I was walking around depressed or suicidal. I wasn't. But there's little vignettes, there's little glimpses in my memory bank of you don't matter. And I started going back all the way to childhood. I did very well in school. I didn't have to study very hard. I, I was just blessed in that area. And, but when I would make a B, my father would sit me down and say, now you're not doing your best and you need to do better. Very stern. And I would just cry. 
And I remember the year in elementary school, I got my first C on a report card and I cried on the bus ride all the way home. Why? Because I felt like my performance dictated my lack of worth. Mm. And if I wasn't doing right and doing well, then I didn't matter. And in that moment, standing against the back wall in the corner, I told the Lord, pilot's license won't work. Master's degree won't work because nothing I've ever done has made me feel like I matter. And the Holy Spirit whispered, I've been waiting your whole life for you to say that. You know, it's the Lord when it's like something that you wouldn't even come up with. And I'm like, God, what do you mean? He said, I've been waiting your whole life to give up on doing and just be mine. You don't matter because of what you do. What you do is worship back to the Lord. It's not worth building to the Lord. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't say, if you keep my commandments, I'll love you more. Mm. And so I just wilted into the floor. I just melted until I was sobbing. I'm, I was ugly crying. I had, you know, It was just all puddles between my face and the ground. And it was like the Lord was ripping out the foundation of my works-based Yes, I know faith with works, mm-hmm. but works come after the cross. Yes. It's the cross that tells us who we are. So as the Lord is just ministering to me, there was a guy walking back and forth beside me. I could see in my peripheral and hear his footsteps. And I'm like, I'm in the back corner. Why won't this guy leave me alone and go somewhere else and do whatever he needs to do and while I'm having this crisis moment? And um, then he leans down and he says, Robert, I've been going through something really difficult. When I came to church tonight, he said, I thought, is there anyone here that can help me pray through this situation? He said, when I saw you walk through the door, he said, I told myself, there's a man of God. He's going to pray with me and I'm going to get my breakthrough. He said, I've been waiting all night for you to get up so that you could pray with me. And it was like the Holy Spirit whispered and said, see, you do matter to people. Mm-hmm. And, but that wasn't the answer, right? Yeah. Then, then we're going to go around and see how many people we matter to. And so it's just like the little, just a little thing to like silence the lie of the devil for a moment. Man, I'm going so long. I'm sorry. And then he leaned down and he said, but while I've been waiting for you to get up, the Holy Spirit said, Robert's not going to pray for you tonight because he prays for thousands of people and people don't lay hands on him. So you're going to pray for him. Mm. And this young man in his early twenties that I didn't grow up with, hasn't known me for years has barely known me as I come and go from from my home church because I'm gone most of the time, knelt down. And as he began to pray, I have no idea what he said because all I heard was he said, the Lord showed me you praying for thousands of people and, and not feeling like anybody prayed for you. And when he said that, it was just the Holy Spirit said, if I showed that to Patrick, then don't you know I see you? And I've seen you in every sweaty suit and tie that you've taken off in every place that you've stayed and said, God, what is it worth? And God said, it mattered to me. But it didn't matter to me because you preached. You matter to me if you never preach again. That moment was a revelation of sonship. There are no levels to sonship. We can grow in the anointing. We can grow in obedience. We can grow in sanctification. We can grow in grace to grace, glory to glory. You cannot, I cannot be more son to my parents. When I was born, it was nothing of my own doing, and I was 100% son. 
And when I've been the worst son on my worst day, I was not 50% son. I was still 100% son. On my best day, I'm a child of God. And on my worst day, I'm a child. Okay, I'm not saying you can't lose your salvation. I'm just saying you don't need to level up in sonship. Mm. I didn't know if I'd preach again after that moment. I was so liberating. I'm like, I'm not a preacher. I'm just a son. That moment dictates the moments like last night that I was under the burden of the message. I preached the message, not perfectly, but with what grace and limitations I have. And then God met us in the altar, pouring out and praying for people in the altar. And then when I'm done, there's a part of a preacher that wants to hear from the leader of the event, good job. But I also know that that's a part of me that wants the worth from man. Yeah. And while I was looking around waiting for Pastor Benny Bora to say, great message, that's what we needed, that's you obeyed God, any of those comments, I said, no, Lord. You know, it's not wrong to receive some affirmation from people discerning. But I knelt down and said, Lord, I'm not a preacher. Mm. I'm a son. Remind me of sonship. So that was... Uh, after salvation and the baptism of the Holy Ghost, that moment was one of the greatest personal moments I've had with the Lord. Thank you for sharing your heart with us. <laughs> um, I'm out of words. Yeah. <laughs> I think, honestly, I think this resonates, will resonate with a lot of people mm -hmm. who are doing ministry. I think that's the tendency a lot when you're ministering a lot to get to want to get the affirmation, to mm -hmm. want to want a validation from man. Because mm -hmm. in a sense, I think we have this this thinking that these are men of God that hear from God. So mm -hmm. I know that happened to me. If they don't hear from God about me, mm -hmm. then maybe something's wrong with me. So I think that sonship means that we're not looking for a father elsewhere we we know who our father is mm. yeah. we recognize the voice of god mm. and we don't we're not we're not looking we're not foster children who are going from home to home come on like we're we're people who know where we belong even if we have to move even if we're evangelists and we're traveling we're in the father's home he's mm -hmm. with us mm. we're cloaked and we can know that in a prison cell under persecution we can know it on a mission field where we're surrounded by people that speak a different language of a different religion. But how, how much more should we also be able to know it in our home church when we're done with our trumpet solo? You know, I'm trying to memorize Romans 8 at the beginning of this year. And I don't know why we, we put scripture memorization on children, but kind of give up on that when we get older. And uh, I'm up to verse 28, so I've got about 11 more verses to go. But man, that there's, it's all powerful. But when he says, when he says, for you have not received the spirit of bondage again unto fear, but the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father, Abba, Tata, Meo. He's my dad. He's my dad. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Yes. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and join heirs with Christ Jesus. Amen. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together with him. So it doesn't mean that we don't need to encourage one another or affirm one another, and probably more so when we're when we didn't do well, you mm -hmm. know. Um, but 
we and it doesn't mean that we don't need spiritual. Uh, I don't know that the word fathering is the best, but those that take responsibility to watch for our souls as leaders should, and that we're submitted to them. But we first hear our Father say, "You're mine." Yeah, and I. I'm, I've particularly come out of a season right now where um, the Lord will strip away everything until mm-hmm. you realize that. Mm-hmm. And I think sonship is so crucial. First and foremost, we are children of God. And especially for, for people, and I know a lot of people who serve in the church are doers, and they want to do out of their passion, their zeal, and their love for Christ. They just want to go and do everything they can. But um, when we miss the forest for the trees, mm-hmm. God will, I, I've observed that he's, he'll come in and he'll take everything out until you make that, until mm-hmm. you come to that realization, because he cares more about your personal relationship with him, sure. that you are Amen. set and steady in that, as everything, opposed to anything else you can do. Anything that can be shaken shall be shaken. Mm. He will bless us by detaching us from the bankrupt system, be it a relationship, a friendship, a romance. Uh, a job, um, our own talent, our own success, and thank God that He does. Amen. To remind us, we hold on to the only thing that's unshakable. Yeah. I thought about this many times. I'm like, God, we have to be okay with not everyone understanding or discerning what God put in us. There's like sometimes there's very few people who are who God allows to be discerning for us. And we have to recognize that because I remember looking for validation and for like approval or whatever encouragement and the Lord would give me, and I realized like I have to take it from the people that God actually appointed for me. I think we have to have the vision to recognize the people that are assigned to us Mm -hmm. and to let those opinions hold more, more weight above maybe the crowd. Because sometimes we're looking from affirmation from wow. the crowd yeah. when like, God's like these people that have the spirit of God in them. Like, look for the four, look you for the You just dropped five. the bomb, sister. That's so powerful. Because you, you want the crowd to approve of your performance, but the people that know you closely know your character. Yeah. Yeah, anybody at a distance can like an Instagram post, mm. uh, a sermon, a song, an outfit, you know, where a, a car you drive, anything that we put out as our persona. Yeah, we need people that smell our flesh to say, "Hey, you need deodorant every day too." You know, you, you, you. What need, an analogy! Yeah, we do. We're 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 in this, you know, we're in this limited humanity. Let's talk about that if we have a minute to um, maybe maybe instead of the, the, the concept of like, where do I find the discerners that have access to affirm me? Maybe that's a whole like fear of rejection framework that we need to somehow say, I'm not trying to dodge the rejection by finding those that resonate for affirmation, wow. you know, that's not the medicine. So what is? What's what, what's the healthy response to not operating in the fear of rejection? I think it's finding healthy relationships and true friendships where you can just be raw and authentic and honest with one another. 
at least personally for me, that's been it. I have a few close relationships where they've seen me at my best, at my worst, everything in between. I don't fear rejection from them because we've built that history. We've built that connection. Uh, we've been, our relationship has been through the trial of fire, mm. but also through the joys and the celebrations. And those relationships are a reflection of of my relationship with the Lord too. Sure. I, I think that's how you can come around that just true, authentic life that you've done with somebody else. That's the medicine for it. Yeah. I think the one of the distinctive standards of Christianity is in the Sermon on the Mount. And as a person that believes in the doctrine of separation, that we are not like the world. Come out from amongst them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch not the unclean thing. I'll receive you unto myself. I believe in all of that. We don't dress like the world. We don't talk like the world. We don't listen to their music. We don't smoke what they smoke. We don't sing what they sing. We don't laugh at their comedians. We are a separated people. But the distinct mark of separation was not in the Sermon on the Mount of... What I'm saying is standards of separation matter. But what was the one in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon of all time? Jesus said, love your enemies, pray for those who curse you, bless those that curse you, pray for those who despitefully use you, abuse you, speak all manner of evil against you. I think within that one that one direction from Christ, he's saying the world does what they do to get love. When they don't get it, out of the fear of rejection, they reject you hmm. before you reject them. They have no control. The fear of no control shows up in anger. All of these things are the brokenness of no love in people's heart, no holy love. That's what John Wesley called sanctification, perfect love. We who have received Christ, we don't then dodge the person that hates us because I'm not twisting what you're saying. I'm just saying, you know, somebody could take it and think, oh, I, I got to cut off all my haters because they're not the discerners God sent to affirm of me. No, no, no. We don't cut off our haters. Mm. We look them at the eye, in the yeah. eyes and we say, I love you with the love of the Lord. And, and that's harder to do for a coworker that's in the cubicle beside you that you run into in the break room that you know is stabbing you in the back, talking bad about you, throwing trash to the boss about you. It's harder to do with people that you can't get away from. Yeah. But it's because this is the standard difference between the one who's walking with Christ and the one who's not. They do what they do to get love, significance, affirmation. We do what we do because we have found love. Not in a moment where we pray the sinner's prayer, but in an abiding relationship with the Lord, we get up in the morning and we say, Lord, I woke up with every insecurity that my flesh throws at me every day. Abba, Father, remind me again of sonship. And as he fills our love tank, and we walk with him, then when somebody slaps us on the cheek, we don't retaliate because we're not afraid of rejection. We love them and we see the brokenness that caused that, uh, you know, that angry thing to rise up. And we love them to say, wow, let me love that out of you. Let me show you the love of Christ that will heal that. If you, if you boil your entire holiness down to what you wear and don't wear, then you're done being sanctified when you get dressed in the morning. Hmm. You don't need the grace of God for anything else in the day. And I'm not saying clothes don't matter. I just am saying after you get done getting dressed physically, Paul says, I believe in Galatians, be clothed in compassion. Hmm. <laughs> and that takes more than 15 minutes in the morning. Yeah, That takes all day saying, I don't have to fear rejection. My love tank is full with the acceptance of my heavenly father. 
Amen. Thank you so much for sharing all these thoughts and your heart with us, Robert. And thank you for inviting me back. As we wrap up this episode, are there any closing thoughts that you'd like to leave people with? Anything, any last nugget that you'd like to share with those who are listening? Well, you know, this is a thought I came away with last night. At camps, you know, there's there's more liberty to do things a little bit different than maybe what people do at their home churches and um, at conferences. And yet in the age of live streaming, there will be people at home that say, they shouldn't have done this. They shouldn't have done that. And in the day of this this technology of podcasting, whatever fear of the Lord and reverence that someone has been raised in that's hearing comments that this American has made or these uh, women of God have made, and and through that prism, something something didn't jive with you. Something didn't um, it didn't rest well. And and you're like your your knee jerk reaction is I'm against it. It's wrong. I would just I would like to I would like to offer this to you. I would like to offer it to those who disagree with the strictness of your pastor or um, the the way that someone else has ministered or led or spoke that you say is not strict enough. When we see brothers and sisters in Christ, give them grace to know that if you disagree with their actions, their intentions were probably to please the Lord. When you're, when you're young, you want, to, you want to fight. But I love seasoned saints, old bunicas, that just if you say, hey, hey, Grandma, what do you think about this preacher over here on TV? She's not going to say, oh, I watched him last week. Here's 15 things I disagree with. Mm-hmm. She's going to say, well, a Southern grandma, I don't know how she, a great Romanian grandma, a Southern American grandma say, come here, baby, let's pray for him. Let's lift him up to the Lord. Amen. Jesus is going to take care of him. I just have been in so many Romanian services where I just wonder how hard it must be for people to open their heart and receive the grace of that moment because they've been taught to put up a filter, a wall, and to wrestle and to fight with so many things. Jude does say, contend for the faith. I believe in it. Lift up the banner of holiness. Stand firm in the fear of the Lord. But when you see your brother and sister this is, what I, this is what I told a brother last night in fellowship afterwards. He said, how do we, where do we, where do we put these people that believe different than us? St. Augustine said in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Yeah. But Robert Martin says, if we come to a day of persecution again where we're thrown in prison, that person may be different than me. But if we're two Christians in the same prison cell... Can I have confidence for them to pray with me? Mm. Do they love my Jesus? Can we call on Jesus together? Does that mean I want my children to sit under their ministry and let them teach my children how to dress, how to act, what to watch on TV? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying let's look for people's motives and say you're a different place on the grace journey. I pray that you'll grow in the fear of the Lord and sanctification and boldness as a witness for Christ. If I've said something you disagree with on this podcast— Pray for me. If your pastor has laid down a law and you're like, hey, it doesn't take all that. We don't have to live that. Just pray, walk in grace. And um, I think we could all grow in that. Amen. I think the best way to end this actually would be with a prayer. Amen. Would you pray us out, Robert? Father, we thank you for the grace that you've given us. We thank you for the adoption to sonship. As many as believed on him, to them gave he power to be the sons of God. Lord, we're not perfect, 
Your blood is perfect. You have forever sanctified those who are being made holy, your word says. So while you're walking with us, God, we love you in this moment, not as we should, but we love you the best we know how right now. And we ask for grace to love you more. We're not as holy yet in our conduct as as we want to be, but God, give us sanctifying grace to be more holy. God, give us the grace to embrace one another, not false doctrine, not errant teaching, but to embrace one another and brothers and sisters in prayer, to lift one another up, to believe good of one another, to believe all things, hope all things, whatsoever things are good and noble and praiseworthy to think on these things. Mm. God, we do spiritual warfare even now by taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians Mm. 10, 4 and 5, Lord. We pull down strongholds of speculation, imagination, and suspicion. Lord, I pray for the listeners here that they would take captive suspicion, that we would not be a suspicious people. We would be a compassionate people, standing firm on truth, giving no inch to backsliding, but with great love lifting one another up towards Jesus. God, we are facing uncertain days. The systems of the Antichrist are on the horizon. Lord, we need one another, and we need increasing grace and glory and the fire of your holiness to burn in us. God, pour out revival. Yes. Pour out revival. God, pour out revival on the young people of the Romanian community. Raise them up to be preachers, singers, songwriters, worshipers, street evangelists, ministers in nursing homes and ministers for children and missionaries, 10,000 times more anointed than any generation before them. We believe the glory of the latter house shall be greater than the former. And may their leaders release them and fan the flame as Paul told a a younger man, a much younger man than him, Timothy, fan the flame that is in you. God, we thank you for what you're doing. We give you all glory in Jesus' name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Robert, for joining us on this special episode. We love having you on, and we really appreciate that you came to join us. Thank you again. For those of you who are listening, um, for those who are listening would like to find out more about you and your ministry work, where can they best find you? Don't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Amen. Open your Bible and uh, follow Jesus. I think that's a great way to close it. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. And um, we will see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.